Welcome to the Parlay Podcast, a thought-provoking and entertaining podcast that breaks down the pathology of speech, language, and other processes that affect the way we communicate on a daily basis. Professor of Speech and Language Pathology, Chantal Mayer-Crittenden, hosts a bevy of guests who help her explore and explain the diverse landscape of speech, language, and their relationship with the brain. For more information, please visit theparleypodcast.com, where you'll find show notes, resources, and more. And you can also follow the podcast on Instagram. Hi, everyone. This is Chantal Mayer Crittenden, your host for the Parley Podcast. I am still a bit ill with this horrible virus that I have contracted, so please forgive my not-so-podcast-worthy voice. But I have a, a very special guest again today that I could not uh, cancel, so uh, bear with me. So I do have um, Dr. Lynn Turkstra with me. She is a speech-language pathologist and a professor in the School of Rehabilitation Science. She's also assistant dean of the speech-language pathology program at McMaster University here in Ontario. She's a faculty member in the neuroscience graduate program and a member of the Centre for Advanced Research in Experimental and Applied Linguistics. Hi, Lynn. Hello, Chantal. How are you? Well, I, as I said, I could be a little bit better, but uh, it is what it is, and we just got to keep on trucking through. How about yourself? How are you? Good this morning. Thank you. Good. Now, uh, maybe I'll just let you tell a bit more about yourself. I gave a very brief introduction, but tell us about yourself, about your, your career, and uh, a bit about your research interests, please. I started my career here in Ontario. So um, as an undergraduate with a degree in French literature, I wasn't sure what to do uh, with my life. So I went for career counseling and the career counselor said I should be a speech language pathologist. That's great. I'm glad they're, they're advising people down that path. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And I'm guessing like some people, I had never heard of speech language pathology before. Right. Uh, so I did some homework. Anyway, it seemed like a good fit. I ended up going to graduate school at State University of New York at Buffalo, um, mostly because they seemed very friendly. <laughs> I see students putting a huge amount of effort into choosing graduate schools now, and I feel so fortunate that I ended up in a really good program kind of by accident. <laughs> um, so when I knew I was going to graduate school, I, um, at the same time, I had an opportunity to be a student, sort of a student intern in a neurosurgery clinic. Um, and that started my love of neurology and neuroscience. And so I went into my graduate program with the idea that I wanted to do something that had to do with the nervous system. Um, and so that was the beginning of me specializing in neurological communication disorders then I worked at um, what is now Trillium Hospital in Mississauga. It used to be called Mississauga Hospital on the neurosurgery unit. And I had so many questions. I was reading, reading, reading all the time. I had a wonderful supervisor, Ingrid Bergman, who encouraged us to read and made time um, for me to read in what was the equivalent of a clinical fellowship year from the US at that time. Okay. Um, so I realized I wanted to go back for a PhD. So at the same time, um, the University of Arizona, Tom Hickson was, um, the chair then, and he was looking for PhD students. And one of my professors from Buffalo mentioned my name and he called me at work in, the, in Mississauga and said, would you like to come for a PhD? That's great. <laughs> yes, it was really wonderful. And I, geography is not my strong suit. So... I didn't really realize how far it was um, until I got there. It's about as far from Toronto as you can get within the continent. So it was quite far from home and quite a different climate, culture, everything. So, uh, yeah, so I did my PhD there and with Jenny Hoyt. And then, um, and I started in motor speech, but then I sort of switched over um, into a kind of an odd topic of looking at response in vegetative state patients. Okay. Um, 
I'd had a patient in Mississauga who was not responsive. And so I was just determined to find a way to get to patients who couldn't communicate. Um, so anyway, that was how I ended up sort of being interested in brain injury. That was the beginning of my interest okay. in brain injury. And then my postdoc in Arizona, my mentor was Audrey Holland, and she connected me with an Australian neuropsychologist named Sky McDonald, who was studying pragmatics. And so all of those things kind of came together, and I ended up studying pragmatics or social communication in people with brain injury and other neurological disorders. So I stayed in the U.S. for all my academic career until moving back to Canada, as you know, Chantal. Um, <laughs> just over three years ago um, because of the opportunity to start this new graduate program at McMaster. So mm-hmm. here I am full circle. When we're very happy to have you back in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> and I am very happy to have had your help in going through the process of starting a new program. Yes. Yeah, it is uh, quite an undertaking. That's for sure. It is. Now, um, because our listeners are very uh, diverse, is a very diverse group, could you maybe explain a little bit more about pragmatics and social communication. So for for those who may not know exactly what that means, maybe give us a bit of a definition. Absolutely. So it's it's interesting because it's been kind of an evolving concept uh, that has been defined differently by different disciplines. Mm -hmm. So the word pragmatics originally comes from linguists and philosophers in the 1940s and 50s who talked about language being more than just the rules of grammar and the meaning of words, but also that language had a use, had a purpose. And so pragmatics became the aspect of uh, communication that was about how you use language basically to accomplish things, to influence people, to get information, to express your thoughts and feelings beyond the literal meaning of your words. Mm-hmm. Um, so for speech language pathologists, that has become form, content, and use. So form being grammatical structures, content being the meaning, and use being how you use words. So pragmatics had this long tradition in speech language pathology from about the 1970s. And so we all talked about pragmatics as the aspects of communication that had to do with how you used it. And a lot of that came from children, um, studies of children. So people talked about how children request information or um, follow directions or complain or, um, you know, use language to make friends. They ask for clarification or repetition in the classroom. So that it kind of came out of this tradition from children, and then it was applied to adults. So we were that was sort of percolating along in the speech-language pathology community for a few decades. And then probably in the 1990s, research on autism really took off. Mm-hmm. So there was this huge other community outside of speech-language pathology of psychologists, cognitive psychologists, neuropsychologists, developmental psychologists, and then neuroscientists who were really interested in the nature of the social problems in children and adults with autism. And so the term social communication became a more popular term. So we sort of had these two parallel tracks that speech-language pathologists were talking about pragmatics. And at the same time, this huge other community was talking about social communication. Mm -hmm. So even now, it's a bit confusing because people use social communication sometimes interchangeably with pragmatics, but there are some aspects of social communication that are more than pragmatics. Um, Like the things I study sort of straddle this line um, because pragmatics was really about language mm-hmm. and social communication is also about feelings and belonging and mood and, you know, other things. So, so we're in a bit of a confusing time, I think, because we have these sort of two sets of terminology. Um, I might recommend to readers who are interested in knowing more about how we define pragmatics a review paper that was published in 2017. I'm an author on that paper, and it comes from a really wonderful joint committee between the American Speech and Hearing Association and 
the American Psychological Association Neuropsych Division, which is Division 40. And that group is comprised of SLPs and neuropsychologists, and they work together on a lot of papers about our joint scope of practice and you know, how we work together. So in this paper, the neuropsychology side of our group asked us if we could write kind of a primer for psychologists on what speech-language pathologists do in terms of pragmatics. So what are the terms we use? What are the assessments we do at different ages? And I think it's a very nice review paper for anyone who's interested in this. We talk a little about the history of the terminology in that paper and then how some of those historical terms still show up in our assessments today. Okay, I will be sure to provide the link to that paper on the show notes at theparleypodcast.com. I know I've used that paper uh, quite a bit and one of my students or my student used it in her um, master's thesis. And I also like when I um, talk to my students about pragmatics and social communication, I like to talk about how as speech language pathologists, we work on speech language and communication. So communication you know, it's so broad, it doesn't even necessarily need to involve language. Whereas, like you said, pragmatics is really that language component, which we uh, specialize in as speech language pathologists. Um, Okay, so that's great. So we'll, um, listeners can definitely go and and check that resource for more information. Now, you kind of talked about how you fell into um, your work with brain injury and pragmatics and social communication, but why did you find interest in that topic and, and you know, make a, a career out of it? That is a good question I ask myself. <laughs> um, I was working on a grant application on pragmatics in adolescence with brain injury and um, a grant reviewer said to me, you have chosen the most complex disorder, the most complex behavior at the most complex age. <laughs> I think maybe you should pick something different. <laughs> so it is really different. I think um, I like the puzzle. So I think it's really interesting to try and sort out how people Uh, communicate the way they do beyond just vocabulary and syntax. Also, my first introduction in this area of pragmatics was with teenagers, and adolescents are a very underserved population. I know. Uh, At the time I first started um, studying adolescents, no one was really doing any research on adolescents, and then it became sort of a hot thing in the early 2000s because of these findings that the adolescent brain was still developing. Mm -hmm. And so I'm interested in brain structure and function more broadly. And so adolescents were a really good model for looking at, you know, a developing brain and, and relations between brain and behavior development. And then brain injury, of course, was a really peak incidence in adolescence. So Mm -hmm. it was, it's sort of an interesting system um, and I think another thing that's kept me motivated over all these years is, to be frank, I don't think our intervention for social communication problems is very effective. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm talking about for adolescents and up. I'm not talking about for very young children. But if you look at the literature on outcomes for teens with autism, um, you know, young adults, older adults, everybody... It's not really impressive mm-hmm. what we've done to improve social inclusion and quality of life in people with social communication problems. So I, my, my research motivation is always clinical. So mm-hmm. I keep hoping that we will find something that will really be the, the magic bullet, probably a bad mm-hmm. metaphor, but to, um, to help improve social outcomes for people with brain injury. And I wonder why that is. Is it because it's so poorly understood by the general public? It's not something that is tangible. You know, it's not like they have a, and I say this almost every episode, communication disorders are not visible. It's not like a physical disability where someone might have a limp or they might be in a wheelchair or have a cane or what have you. Do you think that that's part of the issue? Why these teens are not getting the services that they require? 
I do think that's a big part of the issue. So it's, it's not only invisible in the sense that it's not physical, it's also abstract. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Very difficult for people to articulate what it is about a person that is not working. On top of that, it's awkward to talk about. Mm -hmm. Very difficult to talk about social communication with another person. As humans, we just find it extremely difficult. And something that has been um, uh, influence underlying everything that I have done is that these things are learned implicitly over thousands and thousands of repetitions, and they need to be executed in milliseconds in a fluid environment. And to try and quote unquote fix something Mm -hmm. in a way that will allow the person to to use whatever that skill is flexibly in that time scale is really, really difficult. So I think if you're working on something like grammar, you can say, well, here's an underlying principle, you know, for a very young child and, you know, draw your attention to bound morphemes or, you know, whatever it is. And you can say, well, that's a principle that's going to apply. But in social communication, it's not that straightforward. And it's so context dependent. I mean, by definition, right? This is communication in context. So how do you even capture the context in which someone needs it? Yep. Um, needs those skills. And I find you also have to help the person with the social communication disorder recognize that they have difficulty understanding certain nuances or that they may have issues in social context. I find that's often a big struggle. Do they even know that there is an issue? Actually, there was um, at last year's uh, symposium on research for child language disorders, there was a talk on social communication in teens or or preteens with um, developmental language disorder. And they were showing that they are not necessarily aware that they are not part of a group or that they don't fit in or that they missed the social cues. And so my thinking was, well, okay, they're not aware. So they're not necessarily at risk for, for emotional uh, disturbances in that moment, but they don't know. So they're oblivious. So then, you know, it, it's kind of, what is it good that they don't know? I don't necessarily think so, but yeah, it is very interesting how it's it's so abstract and very difficult to, to identify. And your comment is right on about perception and production being different. Mm-hmm. So I would say probably the first 20 or 30 years of research and clinical practice in our field focused almost exclusively on production. Right. There was no recognition that some people can't read social cues. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think autism really benefited speech language pathology, the autism research that came from other fields, because it was all about um, people's ability to read social cues. Mm -hmm. And so, yes. So I think there's no point in, in trying to train someone to respond in a certain way when they can't read the cues to know when they are supposed to respond. And just to follow up on your comment about, is it good or bad to, to not detect those cues? Um, I think that even people might not know in the moment that they're missing something, but most people I've encountered have a general sense that they're not fitting in. And I think that's almost worse. Mm-hmm when you don't know what you're doing wrong, but you keep being penalized for it. Mm-hmm. And that's what I see a lot. My colleague, Julia Evans, who studies um, developmental language disorders, and I did a small study in Wisconsin where we compared kids with um, developmental language disorders, what used to be specific language impairment, mm-hmm. um, teens with um, DLD to teens with autism and teens with traumatic brain injury. And the interesting thing we saw is that on the perception tasks, kids with DLD actually did the best of the three groups. And what we thought is perhaps it's part in the moment when you have to focus so much on the language, you don't have the luxury of processing all of the pragmatic aspects of communication because you're just trying to get the message. And a lifetime of doing that, um, we thought resulted in, we called it lack of practice problem that when you've spent a lot of time just on straight decoding and you have, you know, you haven't been able to do all these social nuances, by the time you get to be a teenager, you just haven't had the practice you need 
mm-hmm. and using those skills so much. So you're sort of on a different track. Yeah, that's a really good point. We, I'm, I'm also, we're also collaborating on something in um, children with cochlear implants with um, Julia Evans and Andrea Warner-Sis, who is a cochlear implant expert. And they're, we have similar thoughts about many children with hearing loss that because it's such a huge effort to concentrate just on the acoustic signal, does mm-hmm. that compromise your ability to pick up on other kinds of social cues? And in fact, we, we had a paper that just came out um, showing that reading social cues is a problem for many kids with cochlear implants. Mm-hmm. Um, the yeah, question is, me. Yeah. yeah, right. And so where, yeah. did, where does that come? You know, you don't, it's really a chicken and egg question. Is it, was it something that comes along with whatever developmental disability results in a loss of, you know, ear structures, or is it a consequence of growing up really focusing on what someone's saying? Mm-hmm. And I guess that's where, traumatic brain injury makes it a little bit more obvious, right? Because they've had an injury and from that point forward, that's when they start having difficulties with social communication. So maybe can you talk a little bit more about your work with uh, people who have a traumatic brain injury or TBI? Sure. So um, as I mentioned, we've been focused a lot on social perception. So my earlier work was a lot about production, but it didn't, you know, the, the problems weren't really so much in the basics of being able to um, say, if I asked, like in social knowledge, so if I say to you, what would be a polite thing to say to someone? People with brain injury generally know what a polite thing is to say. That's not really the problem. So we had this hypothesis that what is lost is really our ability to detect when it's appropriate for you to say something or to read other people. And so for the last few years, we have been studying perception of social cues, um, especially cues related to emotions. So being able to read emotions from other people's facial expression and social cues related to what's called theory of mind. Mm-hmm. It's something that if listeners are not familiar with, theory of mind is a term that is you refers to your ability to understand that people have different thoughts, that your thoughts are different from someone else's thoughts. And most importantly, to use your predictions about other people's thoughts to explain and predict their behavior. Mm -hmm. So I need to try and figure out what you're thinking. Right. But the only reason I need to figure that out is so I know what you're going to do next or I can influence you. So we joke that you might say, well, it's good for us in general to know, like if you want to know is your spouse having a bad day or something like that, but you don't really want to know just because you care about them. You really want to know because you want to know, can I ask them if they'll make dinner? Right. <laughs> so, so that's theory of mind. And problems in theory of mind, this also called mind reading. Um, people call it social thinking. It's been called perspective taking. So this problems in theory of mind are the hallmark impairment in autism. Mm-hmm. So the construct of theory of mind really comes from autism. So we've been looking at that in brain injury and trying to figure out, do people with brain injury have problems with emotion recognition and theory of mind? And if they do, why? Mm-hmm. What is really the problem? Because social skills training does not seem to fix it. So in my last project with my collaborators, um, Melissa Duff, who is now at Vanderbilt University, and Bill Gay Mutlu, who is in computer sciences at University of Wisconsin-Madison, um, we created a series of tasks that really broke down social cues into the tiniest little bits. And what we found is that for very basic low-level cues, people with brain injury were just like people without brain injury. So for example, um, we have a robot task it's a robot version of 20 questions and the robot sort of sneaks. It's called leaks a little glance at the right item okay. on the table. And people with brain injury were just as good at picking that up. Okay. So, but when it got to more complex cues where you have, you know, like connected language and a face plus a voice plus some words, that's when we really saw the breakdown. So that's what we've been focusing on. And it influenced my treatment ideas because um, I have shifted my thinking more toward educating other people about how to say what they think and say what they feel 
and not expect the person with brain injury to quote, read them. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so what we found so far is that it seems about a third of people with moderate to severe traumatic brain injury have problems in this domain, reading emotions from people's faces or trying to understand what other people are thinking. We found some evidence that that problem is reflected in how some people with brain injury talk. So a common complaint people will say about a person with brain injury is that they're egocentric. Mm-hmm. And when they talk, they don't seem to really take the listener into account. And we've seen some evidence that that's connected to not actually having that social thinking. Okay. Um, so it's not that they're egocentric in the sense that it's a judgment. Mm-hmm. It's that a, a person may have difficulty getting into the mind of another person. And I think if you know that as a communication partner, it can get rid of some of the conflict because there's a lot of misreading that goes on and, and that leads to a lot of communication breakdowns. And it also can help provide some strategies so that if you say, I'm not, when I come home from work, instead of saying, I had a rough day, and expecting that the other person will understand that means I need five minutes by myself. Please go sit in the other room. Mm-hmm. Um, you come home and say, I had a rough day, so I need five minutes by myself. Please go sit in the other yeah. room. Um, and people, many people with brain injury also have trouble with just inference in general. Mm-hmm. You know, not even social inference, but just getting that. If you're saying he's and she's remembering who the he and she was in your conversation. So the more explicit you can be as a family member, the better your communication might be. Yeah, I really like that way of thinking, just to talk to the family members, to the colleagues, to the people in, in the person's environment and, and make them a little bit more aware of all of those instances when we really don't state how we're thinking or feeling and assume that the person will will pick up on those cues. I mean, we do it all the time. <laughs> Absolutely. Don't you do it with your children, Chantal? Don't you oh. just have to look at them and they know exactly what you mean? Yep. <laughs> and having a child with with developmental language disorder and ADHD, uh, where theory, theory of mind is definitely uh, <laughs> impacted, it's yeah. I, I catch myself often saying, "Okay, <laughs> I did not say what I was thinking. I just assumed." That's right. You pick up on it. Okay. Um, now, I always ask my guests, "What does communication mean to you?" <laughs> I know, and I thought about that mm-hmm. since you thoughtfully gave me a heads up. So to me, it means everything, right? I mean, everything. It's how, especially in my line of work. So in theory of mind, the only way you know what other people are thinking and feeling is if they tell you. Mm-hmm. So communication is what connects you with the world. And I think people sometimes underestimate both the importance of communication and also how much speech language pathology can help. Right. And I see that at both ends of the age spectrum. So I am a grandparent (laughs) of um, three grandchildren with um, developmental language disorder. And I see how it shaped their personalities. Okay. Um, and this is something you might have seen as well as a parent. Mm-hmm. I, I think when you can't express yourself and when you can't follow what's going on in the world around you, when you're a child, you react to that in different ways. Yes. And I think that speech therapy can be like magic mm-hmm. for a child and really transform the world from a place that sounds like Charlie Brown's adults, you know, that wah, wah, wah. <laughs> exactly. Something that's meaningful. And I really see it at the other end of life. I think it's, it's shocking to me how many years we've known that we can help people with dementia have a better communication quality of life. And still, we are not involved with that community. I know. It's frustrating. It's so frustrating. And it doesn't take a lot. I have an older family member who is in a memory unit in a nursing home. And just walking in there, I was thinking, oh my gosh, there are like 10 things I can think of that would make the environment more manageable for all the residents. Mm -hmm. 
Um, even something as simple as having a written menu at lunch. Exactly. <laughs> like really, how hard would that be? Yeah. Um, and this place is a very, the place I was in is a very fancy, expensive place. So it's only worse in other places. You know what I mean? Like that's a place where if there's going to be something, there's going to be something. And I've been so influenced by Jennifer Brush. She does a lot of work. She and Michelle Bourgeois do a lot of work in dementia, but Jennifer especially has worked a lot on environments Mm -hmm. and what supports communication environments. She has a tool called an um, environmental communication assessment tool, the ECAT, where you go into the environment and look and say, for example, are the acoustics good for yeah. older adults with hearing loss? Yeah. And they're not. No, it's very wide open spaces usually with a lot of reverberation. And yeah, for sure. And very hard floors because people have walkers and you don't want them tripping on rugs. And you really need an acoustic engineer to come in and like set baffles. It's not impossible. And Jennifer Brush's motto is nothing that costs more than a hundred dollars. So she also has a ton of suggestions. Um, So anyway, I, I do think people sometimes underestimate Mm -hmm. communication. Um, And a a colleague of mine in Arizona sees children in the school system and it's it's pretty bad there. The um, Mm -hmm. services are really pretty poor. And she was saying that parents will make sure their kids get to soccer. Yeah. And not speech therapy. Yeah. And I get it. And it goes back to what you mentioned earlier, Chantal, that it's invisible. Mm-hmm. I understand that, but that's so hard for me to imagine because how do you even socialize in soccer right. if you can't follow what the other kids are saying? Yep. Or your coach or, or you your know. coach. Right. <laughs> and yeah. how do you come home and tell your parents about soccer? Mm-hmm. Not for you sure. Yourself? And that is why um, I started this podcast. I just found it so frustrating how the one topic that I'm so passionate about (laughs) is not understood by 95% of the population. And it's not the population's fault necessarily. I think there's just a misunderstanding and and, um, of a a lack of government funding for uh, services when it comes to speech language and communication. It just seems to be something that is brushed under the rug and you know as long as the 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 client the patient can can walk and and do their activities of daily living then they you know communication is just not a priority which is devastating I I love your definition communication is everything and you said it's what connects us with the world and I mean that is so crucial for one's mental health and and integration in the community and, and whatnot so It's also a cost savings. Oh, for sure. So, you know, people who have better communication skills can get better jobs and can use fewer resources from the government. So it's a good, it's a good long view investment. Mm -hmm. Um, You must have the same reaction I do when people talk about, you know, we have this service economy that you need soft skills. I'm like, they're not soft. No. (laughs) These are hard. (laughs) Oh, for sure. Yeah, exactly. You need to communicate. <laughs> you do. And you can't just because you're a person and you have articulators, it doesn't mean you're an expert. Right. Exactly. Like they don't, things don't fix themselves on their own. No. I was, uh, one of the episodes, and I'll, I'll put the link to it, it was with uh, a speech language pathologist in Toronto, uh, Tanya Nesterenko, and she actually became an executive communication coach. Mm-hmm. And she's working with CEOs of, you know, big companies who can talk, who have great language skills, but have a really hard time communicating and are really not good communicators. So she's, I thought that was very interesting that, and she's got the best of both worlds, right? She's got the training as a speech language pathologist and now the executive coaching and, um, like you, said, awesome. you can't assume that just because you can talk that you can convey messages and persuade and, and whatnot. Good for her. Yeah. Um, one of my former students, Peter Muhlenbrook, he's at University of Kentucky. His, uh, for his dissertation, he looked at what predicted sex- successful return to sustained employment after brain injury. Mm-hmm. And social communication skills were number one. And the task that, uh, one of the tasks Peter used was a politeness measure so that a person was asked to, um, they had a phone and they were asked to leave a voicemail message for 
a subordinate or a peer colleague or an employer. Okay. And he looked at their language across those three domains. And that those politeness markers, as they're called, turned out to be a significant factor in people being successful at work. Mm. And Peter has developed an intervention program based around what you might call soft skills um, for people with brain injury. One of the amazing things, and I will actually put, send this to you to share. Um, Peter did a qualitative study of what it takes to communicate in the workplace. And it's amazing. He has this grid of the different purposes, the different media you have to use, the different contexts, the different audiences. Um, And it was all only in one very specific type of employment, sort of mid-level, highly skilled labor. So that's not even the executives. Right. Um, So, yeah. So it's, to me, it was a very impressive document to be able to say, these are all the things you need to be able to do. And now with all the media we have with, you know, with social media, but just in our lives with texting and the phone and in person and email, you know, and this, you know, (laughs) audio chats. Right. um, It's a lot more difficult. Oh, for sure. Okay. Yes. So please do send me that information and I'll put it on the show notes. Now we talked a lot about, um, social communication theory of mind, um, its impact on, on, you know, success for work and whatnot. Now I know you've, you have a few, um, resources out there that, because in 50 minutes, we can only cover so much on this podcast. So uh, if listeners are interested, they can um, access a webinar called Social Cognition, Populations at Risk Assessment and Intervention. And this is available on the MedBridge website. So I can put the link to that. Um, and so this is a course with yourself. And uh, here it says that um, it's designed to define and increase awareness of deficits in social cognition in a variety of populations in the rehab setting, including traumatic brain injury. So um, I'll let the listeners take a look at that. And then you also co-authored a book. Um, So back in 2011, Optimizing Cognitive Rehabilitation, Effective Instructional Methods. So can you talk to us a little bit more about this excellent resource? That was a uh, book with McKay Moore-Solberg. I like to say that I am just the, like the medium through which McKay's wonderful ideas flow (laughs) into written text. So McKay had a previous book with Katie Mateer, who's a Canadian neuropsychologist, um, called Cognitive Rehabilitation that has been a staple in cognitive rehab. And um, McKay and I had both done work looking at how people with memory problems learn. And so we took that work and translated it into a book that has step-by-step guidelines for how to, basically how to teach new things to people with memory problems. Um, It does have a heavy emphasis on memory problems. Um, It does have a lot of strategies for people with things like executive function problems as well. But I would say the book is most most focused on people who have impairments in learning new conscious, consciously learning new information. Um, so yes, it has, it's meant to be really clinically accessible. So it has a lot of forms. Um, I understand that people use it for student training because it's good for entry level clinicians to have to think through step by step. Why am I doing what I'm doing? What is going to be the outcome I'm measuring? What's the difference between teaching someone a new fact and teaching them a skill or how to use a strategy. Um, we have a nice chapter that's um, co-authored by Ava Van Leer and Rick Limoncello that's a really sort of from health psychology okay. about how do people get motivated and when are they ready to learn. So I think that was a nice addition to the book. Mm-hmm. Um, our next edition of the book, which we should be starting next year, is going to take a little bit of a different slant because we're incorporating a new framework from rehabilitation um, that specifies like what is the exact target that you're trying to train and looks at clinician actions as ingredients. So that will be an even more of a step-by-step. I want the person to use the strategy. This is going to be how I'll go about training that strategy use. So, so I, I think the book is probably a good resource. I don't, mm-hmm. 
brag too much about it since I've been co-author <laughs> on the book. But really, McKay is just incredible. Mm-hmm. Just teaching. And in a lot of training programs, we don't learn a lot about how to teach people things, considering we're a profession that's all about teaching. I was just about to say that. It's true. We, And that's one of the things that my students will often say to me, but how do we do this? How do we teach this skill? And unfortunately, in the 45 hours that we, that is allotted to a course, sometimes we don't have time to, to teach how, you know, we, we try to, but there's so much knowledge there. So thank you for, for sharing that resource. I'll put that on the show notes. And you have a, a webinar coming up. I believe it's just, a, a, yeah, it's during lunch hours. So this is um, with Speech Language and Audiology Canada, and it will be held October 14th, 2020 called Intervention for Adolescents and Adults with Cognitive Communication Disorders After Acquired Brain Injury. Um, So people who are interested, speech-language pathologists who are interested, uh, can register for this webinar now, actually, even though it's only in the fall. Oh, really? I didn't realize it was open. Well, I got it off their website. So yeah, (laughs) click here to register. (laughs) So maybe for the listeners who aren't too familiar, because I know that some of my students often ask this question. Sometimes we say traumatic brain injury, and sometimes we say acquired brain injury. And I just picked up on the fact that in this particular webinar, um, the word acquired brain injury is used. Can you maybe clarify a little bit? Yes. So acquired brain injury is just that. So any injury sustained technically after birth. Um, And that could come from a variety of causes. In children, for example, a child could have a near drowning or could have a stroke in early childhood or have meningitis or encephalitis. They could also have a traumatic brain injury. So a traumatic brain injury is a subset of acquired brain injury and traumatic brain injury is sustained as a result of force applied to the brain. So it's specifically force. That force is most often gravitational force. So that, for example, someone's in a moving vehicle and the car stops, then the person stops, then the head stops, then the brain stops. So the brain moves within the skull and different parts of the brain move relative to each other. It also can be force applied to the brain by say a blow to the head. Mm-hmm. Um, all of the discussion about concussion in sports right now, concussion being a mild traumatic brain injury. Um, most concussive blows are things like head to head contact or body blows that shake the head. Mm-hmm. So that's all traumatic. So the trauma is a mechanical trauma. Okay. Thank you for it's- clarifying. I get this question all the time. So I figured we would, <laughs> we would explain it on, uh, on this podcast. Okay, let me take a peek at my interview template here, the questions that I always like to ask. Oh, yes. So um, what advice would you give professionals who work with people who have um, either TBI or ABI and that, you know, have maybe some difficulties with social communication? So I have a couple of pieces of advice. One is there's a lot of research out there. And I would just say, read, read, read. Mm -hmm. Um, And really read with a very critical eye. So for me, it's helpful to keep in mind what I mentioned earlier about whether social skills are the type of thing that you can train with formal didactic training, where you say to someone, when you're listening, you sit up straight and make eye contact. Mm -hmm. So I think read and think critically about what it is you're trying to accomplish with assessment or intervention. Um, There's a lot of uh, bad science out there being marketed. There are a lot of sort of, I don't know what to call it, gadget science, you know, try this, it'll fix your social communication problems. Here's some videos, you know, watch these videos and your child will be better or adult will be better or whatever. So I think that this is an area where a lot of people who don't have expertise think they do because it's social, right? Everyone should be able to do that. So I would say be very, very critical Mm -hmm. about what you see and think carefully about the outcome. The second thing I would say, and it's related to the first, is that calibrate against peer standards for social communication I always say to speech language pathologists, we are not normal. 
So we are not the gold standard right. of social communication. We did a study once where we asked adolescents with brain injury what they thought was what they thought were important social skills. And we asked adolescents without brain injury and adolescents with brain injury. And only the adolescents with brain injury said that communication was an important skill. And it's because we told them it was. Right. Right. So that's us. That's yeah. Us. That's okay. So you have to think, or I think we should think about who the communication partners are going to be. Mm -hmm. um, social communication competence, however you want to define it, and there are lots of different ways people define it, is really in the eye of the beholder. That person needs to function in their own social environment. So the standards of that environment are really critical. Likewise, if you're thinking about, if say you're working with an adult and you're thinking about where they could work, think about their behavior in the context of different work environments and where could they fit in. So it's not, there really aren't objective standards, which is another reason why it's difficult to come up with treatment and assessment. There aren't really objective standards. So I would say look closely at that and so as much as social communication competence is in the eye of the beholder, social acceptance is in the mind of the person. And I've had a number of people who were referred by family members, but the person didn't feel like it was a problem. Right. And we are in a zero tolerance culture right now. So it's true that a person may not think they have a problem, but they might still suffer negative consequences. And of course, that's worth treating. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, if a person feels okay about how they are and they don't meet your standards, it's really not up to us. No, right. Um, my husband, who has the DLD genes, <laughs> um, he's a brilliant neurologist. I also always have to say that. Um, we were talking about social skills intervention for kids with autism. And he said, I just feel like even if kids don't want it, they should have it because social social communication is so integral to everything we do. And I said to him, how would you like mm -hmm. to have therapy for your language problem five days a week for two hours a day, like for spelling? Right. How would you like to have spelling therapy five days a week for two hours a day? Because everybody thinks spelling is important. And he said, oh, well, what do you put it that way? <laughs> but that's it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like if yeah. it's not, yeah. if, if what you want as a human, a child or an adult is to be socially included, I think it's incumbent on us to find out how we, that person can be socially included. And maybe it means not fixing them. Maybe it means finding a place they can be accepted. Yeah. Or working with those around them. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, the World Health Organization uses a definition of disability. And if it doesn't impact their daily functioning, or if they don't feel it has an impact on their daily functioning, then, you know, <laughs> sometimes it's very difficult to intervene. You can't you can't help a person who doesn't really want to be helped necessarily, right? Right. Okay, I just had a big coughing fit and I'm starting to lose my voice, but I do have another quick question. And Lynn, you did touch on it. Um, so it's always to ask, what advice would you give parents or, or, or people who have social communication difficulties? Now you did um, talk a bit about the example with your husband. Is there other advice? And I'm, I'm going to let you talk because I'm really struggling here. <laughs> you're really illustrating the importance of communication right now. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, I think the advice that I would give that I mentioned earlier is to not underestimate the importance and power of communication in a child or adult's life. Yeah, I think that is golden. We will leave it at that. Thank you. Um, do you have, I mean, that's, that's kind of a take home message yeah. in itself. Let's, let's leave it at that. Let's never take that for granted. I, we've talked a lot about some of the resources that are available out there. Are they, there any other resources that you'd like to mention that I can put on the show notes? It can be challenging to find resources on social communication in part because the field continues to evolve. It's fairly new. And so I think we're still trying to figure out things like the terminology, but there is information on social communication in some standard speech language pathology textbooks. Mm -hmm. For example, the Paul and Norbury text on child language disorders has some developmental information and the textbook by Laura Murray and Heather Clark mm -hmm. on neurogenic communication disorders in adults also has some really good resources and 
the Murray and Clark text I know is very up to date with references. So I think that's a good, that's a good general resource. There also is a textbook that's edited by Sky McDonald, my colleague from Australia, Leanne Tor, and Chris Code. It's called Social and Communication Disorders Following Traumatic Brain Injury. It's the second edition of their text, and it was published just a couple of years ago, uh, 2014. I guess time is flying. <laughs> it was a few years ago. But um, I think in terms of an, uh, a good reference for brain injury specifically, I think okay. that, that book has child and adult um, Perfect. communication disorders after brain injury. All right. Well, those are all fantastic resources. I will put that information on the show notes. Uh, listeners can just go to the parleypodcast.com and find all of that information there. Well, thank you so much. Um, time really flew. I feel like I could talk to you for, for a whole other hour, but uh, we will uh, put an end to this episode at this point. Uh, thanks so much. And I hope to have you again on the show uh, in the future. And uh, thank you very much for having me on Chantal. It's a wonderful podcast. I'm glad to be part of it. Thank you. It was my pleasure. All right. Hopefully you don't catch this, this virus. <laughs> oh my gosh. No, now that I'm losing my voice just by proxy. So following a little poll on Instagram, um, you guys told me that you wanted some bloopers. So here are some bloopers. That's great advice. And I think um, you kind of touched a bit on both. So uh, the next question I typically ask is what advice would you give? <coughs> I don't know if I'll be able to talk. Oh my gosh. I'll just take a second. I'll get more water. Okay. <laughs> okay. Almost done here. Almost made it to the end. Oh my gosh. <laughs> okay. Oh, I even got all teary eyed there. <laughs> Good thing this isn't a video. Yeah, right. Sometimes we say traumatic brain injury, sometimes we say acquired brain injury. So in this title, uh, it's acquired. <laughs> and we'll redo that. I'm yeah. <laughs> That's okay. That happened with, uh, with someone else.